I'm Nia Clark, and this is Dreams of Black Wall Street. episode, we heard from attorney Stephen Hanlon, one of the lead attorneys who helped secure the passage of the Rosewood Claims Bill. During his interview, he mentions another lead attorney on the case, former colleague Martha Barnett. To say Martha Barnett is an accomplished attorney is an understatement. Barnett is a past president of the American Bar Association, the first woman chair of the organization's House of Delegates, and she's traveled around the world on behalf of the ABA. Barnett was also the first female partner at Holland and Knight, one of the top law firms in the country, and she's given more than a dozen commencement addresses. Barnett has also done a lengthy amount of pro bono work throughout her career and helped plenty of clients. As previously mentioned, that work includes partnering with Stephen Hanlon when they both worked at Holland and Knight to negotiate a legislative settlement from the state of Florida for survivors and descendants of families of the 1923 Rosewood Massacre, more than 70 years after the tragedy. It's an accomplishment Barnett hopes can be used as a model in similar instances when victims or descendants of injustices seek legal recourse to crimes that could and should have been prevented by law enforcement authorities or their respective state governments. What Barnett did not realize when she joined the case was her personal connection to Rosewood, a connection that is so deep that it seems almost too coincidental to be true. Chance? Divine intervention? Fate? We may never know. What is clear is that no one can tell this story better than Mrs. Barnett. been practicing law 48 years. I recently retired as a partner at Holland and Knight Law Firm, now an international law firm. But at the time I joined Holland and Knight, it was maybe the largest firm in Florida. I joined the firm right out of University of Florida College of Law. I was the first woman that they had hired at Holland and Knight. So it was a learning and growing experience for everyone including the fact that unbeknownst to me at the time, I was pregnant. So I was not only their first female lawyer, I've lived up to every stereotype that I think the men in the law firm had about women coming into the practice. But I stayed there my entire professional career uh, until I retired after about 45 years of practice. The way I became a lawyer had a lot to do with my husband. My husband and I now been married 52 years, but we were college sweethearts and we married right after we both got out of college. He was in the United States Marine Corps and it was during the 60s. And he is an architect by profession, but was an officer then in the Marine Corps. And we knew he had orders to Vietnam during that time. And We had a conversation one night and we were talking about what I was going to do while he was gone. And I told him I was going to get a graduate degree and I was leaning towards 
early childhood issues, particularly social work. And I was a child of the 60s and I grew up volunteering with Head Start programs, things like that. So I thought that was what I would do. And we talked about it and he didn't have any idea about social work or educational. He was just coming at it, I guess, from a perspective that completely surprised me being an architect. But somewhere in that conversation, he said, Martha, if you really want to help people, why don't you go to law school? So I checked and found that the University of Florida then had a summer admission program. And I still had time to apply. I did apply and I did get in and graduated several years later from the University of Florida College of Law. But I tell people that story because as I thought about it later, someone who was headed into combat, who had a degree in master's degrees in architecture, why he would think about the law as a career, particularly for a woman at the time, there weren't that many women. And it spoke volumes to me about the importance of law in our society, that someone who didn't plan to be a lawyer looked at lawyers as people who could get things done that could help people. And and to do things that made justice available to everybody, not just those who could afford a lawyer or who were more privileged. That's super awesome. I love that story. So we talk a little bit about Arnett Doctor in the podcast. I'm sure you got to know him better while you worked on the Rosewood case. So he is a Rosewood descendant, and he worked for a long time, actually, to find an attorney who would take the Rosewood case on. He was not successful until he met Steve Hanlon. This was after a number of other lawyers declined to take the case, including the NAACP. So after this happened, you became involved after Mr. Hanlon started working on the case. Could you tell me how you became involved in the Rosewood case and and what was your reaction when you realized you had a bit of a connection to Arnett Doctor? The law firm had an, an institutionalized pro bono practice that had a partner in charge and associates assigned to it. It was treated just like other aspects of the firm. And Steve came in and created that department. And I knew that he had the Rosewood case. I didn't know much about it. And one of the things I did was I represented our clients before the legislature, administrative governmental law. But I was the primary lobbyist at the time for the firm for all manner of clients, none of them in the civil rights arena, more strip mining and newspapers and technology companies, more simply business. So I told him when he first had the bill, I said, you know, Steve, I'm really busy, but if you need me to help you, I'm always here to, you know, because he had not done legislative work. That year, the bill was filed and it did not get very far. But one of the things that happened was the legislature created a study committee, which is often in a legislative parlance where bills go to die. It's either controversial or unpopular. And you don't want to just kill it or vote it down. As a matter of course, they find a way to not address it by creating a study committee. So that's what happened. It was the study committee that for academics from the state's universities, major universities to come together and look at this because all we had were, you know, what Arnett and some of the Rosewood, the Rosewood survivors had told us, but not enough for a court of law, but we hoped enough for a court of public opinion. 
But the legislature wanted more. And I think mainly they wanted it to go away. It was not a popular topic. It was extremely controversial even then. But the legislature, they funded a study committee. And that turned out to be a gift because once that very highly acclaimed group of academicians looked at it, they validated that this incident had occurred, that there indeed had been a massacre, there had indeed had been a town, a community of Rosewood that had been burned, the people left never to come back. So we had a factual basis, Steve did then, and he, I think, decided when they filed it again, he wanted me to be involved. So he asked me to have lunch with him, and we were bantering about just our backgrounds, where we were from. And I told him that I'd grown up in a town called Coochie, Florida. And he looked, he stopped and looked at me, just, he said, you know where Lacoochee, Florida is? I said, sure. My dad was, you know, he worked at the Cummer Mill. He was the doctor for the mill and had a private practice. I grew up in that town. He said, do you know a man named Arnett Doctor? I said, of course I know Arnett Doctor. My father delivered Arnett Doctor. I've known Arnett Doctor and his mother, Philomena, my whole entire life. I don't think he believed me. He was still in the law office. And he calls and he says, Arnett, hey, this is Steve Hammond here. Do you know a woman named Martha Barnett? He goes, uh-huh. Okay. He looks at me. He says, Martha, he doesn't know you. Like, can't fool me. And I said, well, ask him if he knows Martha Walters. And he says, you know a woman named Martha Walters? He said, I could hear him on the phone. He said, oh, yeah, that's baby Martha. Her daddy delivered me. And so... Therein began a connection to the case, for me, more than just through the substance and merits in and of itself, it was worthy. But this added a personal dimension to me that at the time, I didn't really appreciate the full extent of it. I realized that I had extensive connections to, indeed, some of the people who were the survivors that we were representing, including, I didn't personally remember them as well, but they remembered me as being a child. I asked several of them over months, do you think my mom and dad, who were deceased by then, do you think they knew about Rosewood? Because no one talked about it during my childhood. And they said, most certainly. Your father was the physician to most of the Rosewood survivors who moved to Lacoochee, Florida, because there was a cypress mill there where they could get employment and the owners of the mill, the Cummer family, who had been in Sumner, the town adjacent to Rosewood and had a cypress mill there, they helped get some of the survivors out and they gave them housing, quarters they were called in, housing and jobs in Lacoochee. And so my father, being the physician for the mill employees, knew them when we ultimately put together a list of the survivors and validated their positions, we found his name on their death certificates and on the birth certificates of their children and of their grandchildren. So it was a written and personal connection that almost defies belief. That's pretty insane. That's almost too coincidental to be true. Well, it seemed that way to me. Arnett Doctor's mother was Philomena Goins, and Philomena actually witnessed whatever incident took place in Sumner 
the day of the assault of Fannie Taylor. She was a young child there with her grandmother, Sarah Carrier. To the extent women could be good friends in the 50s and 60s in the Deep South, Philomena Goins was one of my mother's closest friends. And so I knew Arnett's mother almost as a, you know, another mother in my own way. And Arnett and I didn't see each other for many, many years until the Rosewood. People of Rosewood, one of the things that I would talk about in terms of the impact they had on the case, the people had deep faith. They were people of deep faith. And so when I said to Arnett one time, I said, Arnett, what do you think the possibility that a young girl from Macoochee, Florida, would grow up to be a lawyer with the biggest law firm in the state, and that we would come together on this case in an area of the country, the state we knew, among people who knew each other. And he said, well, it's not a coincidence to me, Martha. I think this was God's will. And that's why you went to law school. I said, well, that's one theory. My husband thinks it's so I can do good. But anyway, we had a lot of shared experiences and sadnesses and joys. So you you mentioned the Rosewood survivors a bit. What was your impression of them as you worked on the case and you got to know them, those who you didn't know as well, a little better? They were living witnesses to an historic event, but they were living witnesses. They were to the person Credible, courageous. There was little or no sign of age-related dementia. They remembered with vivid clarity their lives in Rosewood. They focused more on that than the days and hours and the week of the violence and the massacre. Uh, They were old. By the time I met them, it had been 70 years, almost 70 years. I was struck by the fact they were not consumed by anger. They were, when I said courageous, it took me a while to realize just how courageous they were. But after 50 years of a self-imposed silence, they began to speak out about what happened carefully and guardedly. And it accelerated up to and including the legislation that we filed. But, you know, this all occurred in a time in the South called the lynching era. They were witnesses to murder, to violence. They had the trauma of seeing their homes burn and some people killed. And then being in the swamps in Florida in January in their nightclothes. I mean, it was trauma of every kind, and they'd gone on to lead good lives. Most were poor, but they they had every reason to be angry, but they weren't. But I was struck how all they wanted, I ultimately realized, but not initially, should have initially. They were really not interested in the money. They wanted someone to acknowledge their story, to acknowledge what had happened, What they really want is an apology for the state, for the state of Florida to recognize that when their citizens, their lives and property were at risk by a violent mob, the state of Florida, knowing it was going on, refused to do anything 
to step up and protect their person or their property. And the state still has the obligation to do that today, just as it did when Rosewood occurred. You mentioned the lynching era. What did you learn about the way the law is applied to different people in America, you know, during that time? Well, the lynching era was not limited to Florida, of course. It was the South and the Southwest. You know, we were not that far out, believe it or not, from the Civil War. It only been 50, 60 years and Reconstruction. And we were at the time where the South had never given up, I think, my own opinion. Even after the Civil War and Reconstruction, and we come into the 20s, the South had really never given up on its commitment to the concept of slavery. And we were barely where you had full equality for African-Americans. And certainly women had just gotten the right to vote. This was not an enlightened time in the history of the country. So I think it was just the remnants of slavery that had never really gone away. These areas were more rural. The means of communication were not what they are today. The isolated nature of small towns in general and just the nature of Florida at that time, there wasn't that much. You didn't have the impetus for change. What I've thought about on numbers times is how communities like Rosewood, and I suspect, you know, we know there are several other communities in Florida where Zornell Hurston came from and others that created African-American communities that were successful in their own way, but they were basically Black communities. Rosewood had one white family, but they created a life for themselves where, you know, they were prosperous. They were landowners. And I think that people coexisted relatively peaceful. It didn't take much to trigger resentment, the effort to control, the effort to manage what was going on. I mean, just in Rosewood, it was just the allegations of abuse of a woman. There was no proof of it. I mean, there are all kinds of theories about what happened, but it was just the allegations of that that triggered a mob and mass murder. So it was more fragile, but it was more violent then too, or at least extremely violent with Black people having really no hope that government, often the sheriffs and other instrumentalities of government, were in the mobs or were not enforcing the laws. And and I, and I saw a clearer vision of that than I'd ever seen. I won't ask you to go through the intricate details of how you got the Rosewood Bill through the state legislature, because Mr. Hanlon did a really good job. But what were some of the most important component of that process that led to the favorable outcome for your team and the Rosewood survivors? Well, I mentioned earlier that the gift that the legislature the year before had given to the effort was the study committee because it produced an incredibly accurate and compelling factual basis that something had actually occurred with the story itself. And so that was a key thing to make it happen. A claims bill usually deals with personal injury damages. Somebody's been hurt. 
This was the first time, at least that any of us knew, we called it an equitable claims bill. We weren't asking for personal injury damages, but we were asking for compensation and acknowledgement. So we were asking for money and we decided it fit a claims bill. And that was another thing that led to the success is our ability to characterize this into a process that the legislature recognized for compensation or restitution or whatever for damages, usually personal injury, but damages. They had a process available that we could utilize. And Steve did that magnificently. We put on a mini trial in these legislative committee hearings. The thing at that mini trial was not just the facts, but the survivors testified. It was an act of enormous courage for people in their 70s to set foot in the capital of the state of Florida, in the halls of the legislature, when they looked at government as having been the people who were involved in the destruction that they had experienced decades before. We were very careful about the security and making sure that they were protected, as were the legislators. But when they had an opportunity to speak in what was essentially a hearing, room filled with reporters, media, TV, no social media, but reporters from all over the world, frankly, when the survivors told their story, it was compelling. It was educational. It was heart-rendering. It sometimes was funny. It was real. They were telling their story as they knew it. And by the time the hearing was over, most of the print reporters had stopped writing and were relying on their recording devices. And almost everybody in the room had tears in their eyes. And it motivated our supporters, particularly the Black Caucus in both houses, who had been leery of it, frankly, to start with. But it motivated them and the other supporters in a way that it was no longer me spending 20 hours a day trying to buttonhole a legislator to tell them the story, to go through it. We now had other people, the governor's office, who had always supported it gave us his primary aid and said, she is there for you to speak for me in any meeting you have. We, it triggered a beginnings of support. The media coverage of it helped. So that was another key thing that happened. I cannot say enough about the sponsors. We were fortunate in the who we picked as a sponsor. In the House, it was Al Lawson, who was then a representative, Al is an African-American insurance executive, has been in government many, many years. He was the lead sponsor in many ways. He's now a member of Congress, proud member of the United States Congress. And then Miguel de Grandi, who was Cuban-American, whose family had been prominent in Cuba and left because of Castro. He was a Republican. And he had lived through situations where, you know, there's violence, you lose your home, you lose your culture, you lose your history because of something beyond your control. He were, they were incredibly helpful in the constituencies that they represented. 
but also the commitment and experience they brought to the debate was everything added up in the end. And, you know, we won, not by much, but we actually, we won. It is, of all the legislative issues I've ever been involved in, and I was involved in many, it's the only one where people would come up to me, former members and members, years later and say, it is the one vote I wish I could change when I voted against Rosewood. I wish if I could change one thing in my history, I would like to go back and change that vote. Mm. That's pretty amazing. You mentioned the compensation, and I know that you had to call it compensation at the time because reparations was and still is a very politically divisive term. But I wonder, do you think Rosewood might be a model for some of these other communities that have actually started to spearhead similar efforts? I would like to think it is. It's legacy has lasted longer than I think Steve or I ever expected, you know, when we were doing the case, its relevance has never to me been more important than today. When the conversations around reparations for slavery, which have been going on for a long time, are finally getting cachet and they're getting some momentum behind them. People are beginning to realize you can't recreate their lives for them. You can't get everything. But you can find some way to first acknowledge and to the degree it's appropriate, try to help them to resolve some of the results of the damages that occurred for purely racial reasons, but you know, no fault except being who they are. So I think that it could be a model. Reparations, compensation, reconciliation, all of those things are to me part of the same toolbox that our available to us. And I just think the timing is coming. What we did was we were able to get money for the people who had been there, who survived, those living witnesses. We were also able to get a pot full of money, appropriated money, a couple of million dollars set aside for the survivors or their children or grandchildren, their descendants, to compensate them for the value of the property that they lost. The people in Rosewood were property owners. They walked away from their land and homes, what was left of it, never to go back. That property was sold in tax deeds. Who knows what it is? But none of them owned the property of their ancestors. We felt that they should be compensated for the value of the property. That was something we could put a dollar and cents value on. And many were. And I think that's one of the first times that's happened. That's incidentally how I came across the death certificates that had uh, my father's name on it because we had to prove that the people had been in Rose. And a lot of Black people have air property. You know, they don't have deeds like traditional. So proving the ownership, defining it was a task in and of itself. And then we decided, what else can we do? And we created a scholarship for the descendants of Rosewood, and I think it's interpreted broader than that now, they can go to school. Education, of course, is, we all know, a key to finally getting past some of these terrible divides in our world and in our society, that they could go to school in the state universities for free. And so the Rosewood scholarships. And I think those cover, I say it's a model not just because it was a successful legislative governmental action, 
but we tried to address it in different ways to fit the budgets, the availability of the resources, to help people who wanted to do well find a way to do well. And so we created the scholarships, we the recognition, compensation for the property, and just a pure compensation for the loss of what had occurred. about the Goines family, once one of the more prominent families in Rosewood throughout this podcast. The following is an interview with Goines family descendant Virginia D. Hayes. The interview was conducted by Sherry Sherrod Dupree, a now familiar voice in this season of the podcast. Mrs. Dupree has worked with the Rosewood Heritage Foundation for many years. She's an author, historian, archivist, as well as a former instructor and librarian at the University of Florida and Santa Fe College. This interview is one of a number of interviews pertaining to Rosewood Massacre survivors and their descendants that Mrs. Dupree has conducted with the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program at the University of Florida. This recorded interview of Virginia Hayes is courtesy of the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program. Earlier in the podcast, we discussed how some families came to arrive in Rosewood. You'll hear Hayes describe some of her family members who came from North Carolina and settled in various places in Florida, including Rosewood. You'll hear her describe how her great-grandfather, Edmund Goines, owned many acres of land and did so well for himself that he was even able to purchase land in Gainesville for some of his family members before Rosewood was burned to the ground. You'll also hear Hayes describe how some of her family members and Rosewood residents made it out of Rosewood during the massacre. Some of them did so on the train that came to rescue women and children before they took refuge in various cities and towns throughout Florida, including Gainesville. And you'll hear the name of one of those survivors, Mary Hall Daniels. Keep her in mind. We're going to discuss her more in a bit. Florida. We're going to ask you about your relationship to Rosewood. Well, Edmund Goins was my great-grandfather. He's the one that owned quite a bit of land there, and he owned the Tonga factory. Yeah. He also had a store on that land. But quite a few of the members of Rosewood worked for him, and some stayed on that land. My grandfather had 12 children. He had uh, 12 children, and he had bought land in Gainesville shortly before it was burned. So some had come to Gainesville before it was destroyed. My grandfather came from North Carolina, New Bern, North Carolina, and he came to Rosewood 
to work, who would later be my great-grandfather, when he came down on the train to work. And he met Edmund Gowen's daughter, and then he uh, married her. And my father, Harold Marshall, that was his father, who my father, father came down to work for Ed Gorin's um, on the Tungall factory. So that's how I got in the Gorin's family. <laughs> now your father's name was Harold? Yes, Harold Marshall. Marshall. Okay, and he was from Newburgh, North Carolina. His father. His father was from Newburn, North Carolina. Yeah, he. my father was born in, in uh, Rosewood. Okay, so Harold Marshall was born in Rosewood. Yes. Aha, wonderful. <laughs> yeah, and, and so my... grandfather's name was? I think it was James, James Marshall. Okay, James, James Marshall. Uh -huh. All right. Because uh, my great-grandfather was from Carolina also okay. when he moved down to... Yes, but with the machine, he bought his machine to start the factory, Tongar factory. Uh -huh. He bought Tongar. it. Yeah, Tongar. Yes. yes. Yeah, uh, he he bought it on the train. Wow. From Carolina. Mm. <laughs> so they had been doing that work in Carolina prior to coming to right. Florida. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And during that time, people were looking for work, so my grandfather came down to Florida mm -hmm. to work for them. And then he was working and met his daughter, and they got married. So my father and my aunt, Eva Jenkins, you remember her? Yes, Miss Eva Jenkins, That was yes. my aunt. And the, there was another son, he, he passed, and my grandmother passed. She, she died in child labor because in Rosewood, there was no doctor, you know. She couldn't mm -hmm. go to City Key, and you know there was no doctor that was gonna gonna help her. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, the grandmother. What was her name? Sarah. Sarah. So the grandmother's name was Sarah. Yeah. And she passed in childhood. Yeah. In, in yeah. Did the child yeah. live? Yeah. No, no. No. Mm -hmm. child. So it was just a, it was just three of them. Yeah. Three. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But my great-grandfather, he had 12 children. Oh my goodness, okay, he had yeah. 12 children. That's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. They had quite a bit of land. I think they had more land than anyone else. And there were a lot of the people that lived on their land. Yeah. Well, they uh, all the lived other on their land. Yes, they yeah. did. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Could you estimate how much land you think he had? Probably yeah. well over 300 acres. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He rode a uh, mule around one of those gallon hats. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's how he got around his, the property. But he was also into music, I think. And uh, taught piano. So lessons. piano lessons? Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. That's one thing about the people that came here from North Carolina. They were well educated for right. that day. Yes. They were extremely well educated. We found some had graduated from Shaw University in North Carolina. Some had gone to St. Augustine College. Yes. Uh, so they had been exposed to the higher forms of life right. for African Americans right. at that time. Yeah. They were doing quite well. I mean, just about everyone in Rosewood was, was doing quite well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that, that was, we think, one of the reasons why 
the situation uh, happened. Yeah, they had everything they needed. All their needs were met right there. That's what they said. So that uh, most African American towns did not have a water tank. Mm -hmm. They had one because the train stopped in Rosewood. Right. The first stop out of Cedar Key was Rosewood. Yes. And of course, it was a coal burning train, so it had to have water. Mm -hmm. And they would get additional water and make sure the train could make it on up to Bronson and then from there on up to Archer, where we are today. Right. Yes. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, tell us some of the stories about your family. Yeah. Well, some went to Tampa, St. Pete, West Palm Beach. There may have been other places, but I know they. some went to those places um, mm -hmm. and Jacksonville. Miami, too. Yes. A few of them went that far south. Right, mm -hmm. right. Yeah. Did any of them go out of the state of Florida, you think? Eventually, I imagine they did, but uh, mm -hmm. at the beginning, no. But uh, quite a few came to Gainesville. Mm -hmm. As I said, my grandfather had already bought some land for some of the siblings, I mean the children. Yes. Many of them, when they got off the train, you know, some came to Gainesville, they caught that train that night. That's after, exactly right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they came to, to Mrs. Blackwell House, mm -hmm. which was on Seminary Street, which is Fifth Avenue now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They came to her. Yeah. Now, tell me a little bit about Mrs. Blackwell. Mrs. Blackwell, the Blackwells owned that house, mm -hmm. and, and then they had two units. They had two girls, mm -hmm. and I don't think one had any children. She adopted one, but the other one had two boys, almost looked like twins. Mm -hmm. One of the daughters married a Wendy Eunice. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Uh, Wingate. Yeah. Uh -huh. So most people remember that house as Wingate. And my grandfather had a house on the other side of 13th Street. But he passed when my father was very young. So Mrs. Wingate took my father in, and he and my aunt and, and uh, uncle, and raised him. <laughs> As I said, quite a few people came to that house. Some of them ended up around Depot Street. Yes, that's true. Yeah, yes. yeah there were several goings in that area. On Depot Street, yes, yeah. yes. And then we had Mary Hall Daniels. Mm -hmm. She's our only living Rosewood survivor, who was three years old that came out on the train. Yeah. And I think she was around on the Depot Street area. Mm -hmm. uh, she stayed in Gainesville and finished high school at Lincoln. Yes. In 1940. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there were, you know, there was quite a bit of activity there from people from Roseville. Right. Mm -hmm. My daughter Janet and I, we found out that there was a, a Goins fraternal building in Latra. They had one uh, lodge in Rosewood. That's right. Well, well, there's one that was started by someone from Goins right, in Alachua. Okay, that is interesting. Yeah. Because yeah, we knew about the one in Rosewood. Yes. And they found a sword uh, about five or ten years ago out in the woods. It was cut into many, many little tiny pieces. Mm. And it took a while and they put it together. Mm. And they said this was the sword from the uh, Masonic Lodge. Mm. 
And so the Goins were really spreading out in Florida. Right. They didn't just stay in Rosewood. They no. had land in Gainesville and yes. Rochua. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. 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 <laughs> Very yes. prosperous people. <laughs> it was making a way for their family to advance right. in society. Right. That was another part of uh, the history of Rosewood. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. Well, the Rosewood... The reunion is still going on. I think that's just wonderful. You know, year after year, we're, it's still taking place at, yes. at various places. We're keeping the story alive. And that is so important to yes. humanity and to yeah. all cultures. Right. Yeah, you're sharing it all over the world. Yes. Episode, we heard from Mrs. Barnett, one of the lead attorneys on the Rosewood case, mentioned part of the settlement that resulted from the Rosewood Claims Bill, including a scholarship fund for descendants of the Rosewood Massacre. You heard from one Rosewood descendant and Rosewood scholarship recipient, Dr. Benet Denson, previously in this podcast as well. Our next guest, Carlos Hall, is also a recipient of the Rosewood Scholarship, which he credits with giving him many of the opportunities he enjoys today. He's also one of the stewards of his family's history and is working in his capacity as a teacher and a Rosewood descendant to make sure that history is never forgotten. My name is Carlos Hall. I live in Hilliard, Florida. I teach. I've been teaching for over 15 years. And what do you teach? Special education. And I also coach basketball, football, and girls flag football. Ooh, that's a lot. <laughs> Small school, not a lot of help, so we, we got to do a little, a little bit of everything. Yeah, well, that's like three jobs, so bless your heart. <laughs> briefly explain what your family's connection is to Rosewood. My grandmother, she a direct descendant, Mary Hall Daniels. And of course, my mom is her daughter, Alzada Harrell. She was there when it happened. She was a teenager and she was one of the ones who had to escape through the swamp, hop on the train and get out of there. And what family did she descend from in Rosewood? Thomas Hall. It was his family. Now, just to be clear on the lineage, your grandmother, was she Thomas Hall's child? How was she related to him? Do you know? Child. That was her father. So Mary Hall Daniels. Mm -hmm. She was the child of Thomas Hall. Mm -hmm. And your grandmother had a daughter, and your mother's name again is? Alzada Hall Harrell. Gotcha. And your mom had a child, and that would be you. Are you the only child? Of I have a brother, but my mom is my grandmother's only child. Ah, I see. Before the history of Rosewood became widely known, 
How did your family handle its history and knowledge about the massacre? For example, did they discuss it only among family or did they just refrain from discussing it at all? They really refrained from discussing it at all. It was kind of buried until the reparation talk started. And I think that was in the early 2000s. Up until then, I had no recollection of it. But once they started talking about the reparations, you know, my aunt and my grandmother, they started to open up about it. And that's when I found out. But I was really young. Tell me where you were, how old you were when you first learned about it. This was around 1994, 95. I was like a junior, senior in high school. I can remember my aunt, Margie Johnson. She was also there. My grandmother's sister. She was telling me about how they had to escape through a swamp. And that swamp was very dangerous. But, I mean, if they wanted to survive, that was the only means of escape. And then on on top of that, it was by the goodness of some good Samaritans that a train was available for them to hop on and get out of that situation. I mean, if it wasn't for the good Samaritans, I I don't know if we're having this conversation right now. So it was very harrowing. I can only imagine, you know, the emotions that they were going through. It had to be a a super scary situation. And then once they got out of the swamp, it was a railroad track and then a train. And then they they were able to hop on a train. I can't remember where the train took them, but they were able to hop on the train and get out of there. My grandmother went to Miami. And then from Miami, my uncle went to Chicago. And then I think from Miami, my aunt and my grandmother, they came here to Hilliard. Jacksonville. My aunt came straight to Hilliard. My grandmother settled in Jacksonville for a time being, but then she eventually moved to Hilliard. Did your grandmother tell you what they lost, what they had to leave behind when they escaped? They left everything behind. Everything was lost. I think she got out with the clothes on her back. I think she told me maybe a doll or a teddy bear. And by the way, she was very fond of dolls. Because I think when she escaped, she had one in her hand. She held that close to her. And she had a very big doll collection. And so do they have like a farm or a house or like animals or crops or anything? As far as I remember, it was a house. And I think they did have a small farm. When she settled in Miami, how? You know, this is what I think of when I think of all of the survivors, like, what did they do? Like, where did they go for shelter, for food, for clothing? How did they start over? I do know, knowing my grandmother, she was a very strong-willed person. And I, I believe she was telling me that her dad and mom, they were very strong-willed. And I think they were skilled laborers. So I can imagine that they found a way to, to find work. And then, you know, from there, they just tried to start over and build. But I know, I can tell you that They were very strong-willed and very determined. And, I mean, they could have easily just gave up and said, the heck with this. But, man, they found a way to to rebuild. And my grandmother, when she moved to Jacksonville, she became a nurse. And she retired after many years of being a nurse. You were in high school or junior high school? I was a junior in high school. And you came about knowing this story because the bill was going through the state legislature at the time? Yes. Gotcha. What was it like? Your family had revealed this crazy story to you for the first time. You might have been meeting new family members for the first time. 
what was the dynamic like in your family? How were they reacting? What was the atmosphere like when you were around family members? It was very surreal. (laughs) My grandmother and my aunt handled things a little bit differently. My grandmother was very open. She was willing to talk to people. She wanted to share the story. But my aunt, she wasn't very open. She did interviews and she did talk about it, but she wasn't as open as my grandmother. And I'll tell you, my aunt, she was never really, really, really trusting. But my grandmother, she was able to tell the story and share. She was a a lot more open and she did a lot of interviews. Was your grandmother one of the people who ultimately testified in front of the hearing? Can you tell me about that experience? Again, it was very surreal just hearing my grandmother open up about a lot of the things that she went through. By the way, my uncle, her brother, Wilson Hall, he testified too. He was also open to this, but just like listening to them testify, I mean, it's amazing how strong they were to be able to get through that situation. I I don't know what I would have done if I was in that situation. And, And then on top of that, that happened a long time ago. It was in the 1923. And then for them to testify like almost detail to detail about what happened 50 plus years ago was amazing. I mean, you would think that some details they would leave out, but I mean, they were just calling back detail after detail. So I mean, I can imagine something like that just never leaves your brain. Yeah, it just gets burned in there. Now, when the bill was going through the state legislature, it was quite a process, took a couple years. And by the way, when that bill passed, it created that Rosewood scholarship that allowed me to go to college. It was a big help for me going to college. Can you just explain how the Rosewood Scholarship Fund helped you? Did you think you would be able to go to college without it? I think I would have been in a lot more debt without it, but I always told myself I was going to go to college and get a degree. That was a blessing. It helped to keep me out of debt. And I'm very appreciative of that. I went to Bethune-Cookman in Daytona Beach, HBCU, and I thought that was very important. And I was also able to learn more about my history. So, you know, the Rosewood Scholarship was a very, very, very important part in me, you know, getting my degree. I think, I, you know, first-generation college graduate, so hopefully I can get my kids to get to the same point where they go to college, get a degree, and they can keep the legacy moving. Do you believe that it's important to share this history widely, especially with younger generations who may have little to no knowledge of it? Oh, my God. I mean, it's critical that kids, they have to know the history. I mean, to know where you're going, you got to know where you came from. My grandmother sacrificed so much for my mom and then, you know, for me to get where I'm at now. I mean, I wouldn't do or be anything without her sacrifices. Rosewood wasn't the only situation like that. It was a lot of situations. I mean, and it's a lot of people who made a lot of sacrifices for us to get to where we're at. So the youth, I mean, it's critical. And I think it should be in the history books more than what it is now. And I'm a teacher. And I can tell you that there's no way in my history books that talks anything about what Black people had to go through back then. I mean, it was a lot of history in Florida that people just don't know about. And it's a shame. They'll never know. And then if if they'll never know, then their kids will never know. And then it'll just be erased. And it should be a part of history. Where would our financial situations be 
I mean, if that ever happened. And that's another thing. We're already behind the eight ball when it comes to starting our own businesses and becoming successful Black entrepreneurs. But it's kind of hard when your land and everything you've worked hard to build has been taken from you. And people have a hard time trying to understand why we are so upset. So every year we get together, you know, we always talk about my grandmother, my uncle, my aunt, and we give thanks. And then we try to show our appreciation by telling our kids and trying to educate them. When we get on social media, we try to use social media a lot to spread the word. I try to make sure I put it in my lessons. And, you know, not just in February, but any chance I get, I try to spread the message. I mean, I think that's the biggest thing is to not let it be forgotten. If we don't say anything, people are not going to know. I mean, it's not in the history books. episode will be the last of this season. It's hard to believe how much ground we've covered so far, but we're not done yet. In the next episode, we'll explore the state of Rosewood today and efforts to preserve its history. We'll also talk about the wider implications and the historical relevance Rosewood has on the efforts of African Americans to harness the industrious, self-motivating, self-sufficient nature many Rosewood residents embody and the hurdles many Black and marginalized people still face today with regards to those pursuits. One other thing, we're just weeks away from another intelligence speech conference. I mentioned it in the last episode. If you want to hear a bunch of clever people talk about a lot of interesting, fascinating topics, including history, make sure to register for the conference, which takes place on Saturday, April 24th at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. The theme of this year's conference will be Escape. Just like last year, there will be eight hours of great presentations from up to 40 different content creators from the worlds of podcasting, YouTube, and media. Yours truly will be one of the presenters. Just search for Intelligent Speech Conference online to register and learn more. And be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. And check out our website, www.dreamsofblackwallstreet.com, where you can subscribe and keep up to date on our latest episodes. Music